I would say that the German style is more uh, sharpshooters. Mm -hmm. um, when it comes to developers or, or the product organization, um, we just said that the American style is carpet bombing. Um, they take their time for aiming, but they make sure every shoot counts. It's not that it's better or, or worse, it's just different. And coming from a more Americanized environment, sometimes it might feel that it's, it's lower, mm. but at the same time, chances are you're walking on the right direction. So you might walk less distance, but in terms of progress, it's pretty similar. Welcome to another product podcast. You go to place for tech stories from Europe with a special dash of Berlin Spice. I'm David. And I'm Ina. And we're here to slap you with that raw version that other podcasts won't give you. Listeners, welcome to another product podcast. Today is a very special episode for me because we have a mentor and a friend of mine as a guest, Lucas Massou, an Argentinian right now in Berlin with us, is one of the most skilled PMs that I know. There is no book, framework or tool he doesn't know about. With a strong technical background and experience, he made the transition over more than a decade ago potentially one of the first true PMs in Argentina. He was a huge role model to me during uh, our time working together at Olapi, and he currently works as director of product at TaxFix, a tax company here in Germany, from Argentina, and is advisor in a few startups as well. So, Lucas, welcome. Well, thank you guys for having me. I'm flattered. I've never had such a, a great intro before. I'm sure I don't deserve it, but thank you anyway. And I hope he didn't butcher your experience and all that, right? It's yeah. not sugarcoating. From what I heard, he wasn't sugarcoating. Yeah, in our industry, when your experience goes beyond seven years, they're just calling you old. That's it. <laughs> but I, that's one of the luxuries David can afford because he's a good friend. He's yes, good friend. and we will dive in more deeper about your experience. We're not calling you old, but you're like... For me, you're like Yoda for us. <laughs> you know what I mean? Certainly. certainly. Yeah. You've been through a lot of things. Okay. Thank you, guys. And we're going to talk a little bit why we think that is, because you can tell the audience a little bit about your experience and your uh, journey. How did you move into product? And um, yeah, especially what happened back then in Cordoba. Cool. Yeah, sure. So it was back at 2009. I was working with a small team building sort of a prototype for building mashups with a browser plugin. That was the first time I saw a PM. I didn't even know that that was a position. And all of a sudden I see this guy talking to legal about getting approval for using user data. And then the second after the same person talking to the DevOps team trying to solve issues with scalability because they didn't, didn't want this uh, backend to crash. And ne next day he was building his own prototype, testing it with users, asking for feedback. And I, I was amazed with both the person and his job. And I turned and told my boss, I don't know what that is, but I want to be one of those, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And that's how we started. 
And at the time, what company were you working at? And again, this is really early when the product management was developing, right? And what company and yeah, I guess just like, how did it all come about? Yeah, well, Intel decided to open a software development center in Cordoba. We were working for the software group, which was actually a big organization, more than 8,000 people there. And within that big org, there was a smaller group, around 60 people, uh, that was called the Pathfinding and Innovation Team. Mm. Uh, Pretty fancy name. But what we did is uh, we will take technology from Intel or Intel partners and then enable end-user use cases with focus on security, convenience, anything that will uh, boost the usage of Intel devices. Basically, I asked... Rob, my, my former mentor, how can I start? He recommended Martin Kagan's book, who was back then two years old, inspired. Only two years old? Yeah, so because it, it was written in 2007. And so I, you know, checked the book, I read it a couple of times. And so I Google his name and I tell my boss, hey, I, I want to uh, take his class. He had a class. Yeah. that he was doing like in the workshop in the web. yeah exactly he was doing it in in silicon valley every other month something like that it was pretty expensive and then you had to add the hotel and the trip so it was like six to seven thousand k back then my my boss told me no way i'm paying for that but let me write to the guy maybe he can come to cordoba that that sounds a better idea mm. and that's how it happened um we flew marty kagan to cordoba for one week there were around 20 people taking the class for, for that week. And then the funny, funny story is like after a few years in a Minded Product Conf in London, I took his class again and I brought my old notepad. And I got the selfie with the guy himself like cracking jokes about Argentinian barbecue because that seems to be everything he remembered about it. Of course, of course. Yeah. Why probably. And just to set it straight, so... Because it was too expensive for you to fly Silicon Valley, you flew Marty Kagan to Argentina. And that was possible back in the day because Marty Kagan just started about product. Exactly. The Silicon Valley product group was young enough for him to justify the investment, like in in personal time, to fly to the end of the world, to teach a bunch of engineers how to be good product managers. Marty Kagan, we have an OG friend, Lucas, who knows you from way back, so come to our show. <laughs> who knows, maybe he will join at some point. Yeah. I know you have him in LinkedIn, I have him as well. Episode 10, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> Stay let's go. <laughs> All right, let's move on to learning milestones. Lucas is one of those that you can sit and talk about product for you know, the entire evening and still have more questions at the end and probably feel that you don't know shit about product. Mm-hmm. So there are a couple of things that we, the, that we prepare for you listeners on delivery. Dates are overrated. Tell us more, Lucas. Yeah, so especially at the beginning of most uh, product managers' careers, you know, there is this obsession about shipping on a specific date that is usually not justified. I remember with my first product, which was an app store for Windows platforms, we had this date that was, you know, fixed. 
10 of January of 2010, which was the day that Intel CEO was giving a keynote at the CES. Mm. Sorry for all the acronyms. And for us, that was D-Day. So we worked like crazy, overtime, weekends. The team was massive, massive investment also on the developers program because you don't want to launch with an empty shelf that, that will be just nonsense. And then we get our screenshots, our videos. Um, I go to Las Vegas. I sit with the guy preparing the demo. Back then it was Paolo Tellini, that was the name of the, of the CEO of Intel. <laughs> And then showtime, and I see slide after slide, and I start getting nervous because, you know, where is our stuff, right? And right at the very end of the presentation, I see a very small screenshot. One of the 20 screenshots that we were planning to, to show on the presentation, and there wasn't even a download link. So just a screenshot, the logo into the App Store, and then the presentation ends, and I freaked out. I'm like, dude, I've been working for six months, weekends included. Non-stop. Non-stop. Several people doing the same, and they don't add the download link. It's like, this is C the CES, 5,000 people watching, many more online, yeah. and no download link? What happened? And then... I talked to the marketing guy and he's like, yeah, we decided to do a soft launch because yeah, you know, the product is not there yet. So that's how I realized that sometimes we tend to put much more emphasis on dates than what it actually should have. And at the end of the day, life continues after the, that date. Yeah. As a young product manager, right? Because this is also coming from stakeholders. How do you manage that that pushback are you as a product you have to push back to these stakeholders like hey i want this done end of q3 this is our perfect deadline and that's the mentality that you have but again as a seasoned product manager how would you give an advice to say hey dates are rated to the stakeholders so i will try to zoom out the advice to uh, more generic advice which is uh, and it's probably not new don't try to please everyone mm. because that's when you start um, losing, right? Now, there are a few frameworks that you can use. One of my favorite is from the shape up methodology, which is the betting table that shifts the focus from defining scope and estimating dates to defining length for a development cycle and see what you can fit you come up uh, with a menu with all the things that you can do in three sprints, four sprints, and a potential cost or alternatives for how far can you take them. Mm. For example, you can have an option of, I don't know, reporting data with Facebook and Google as a big batch versus fixing the UI as a small batch, mm -hmm. and then you get to choose. Either you go big with the first one or small with the second one, right? It's very powerful because you're forcing your stakeholders to make a trade-off. When you go with the road mapping approach, they don't actually make a trade-off. 
because they have this feeling that everything is going to be built at some point. Exactly. Let's squeeze it in. Mm -hmm. Exactly. exactly. <clears throat> like everything is in, in the roadmap is important. I think the, definitely the dates conversation is, is controversial for many. I would say that even depends sometimes on the culture of the company. But one thing that I can definitely relate in my experience has been that, you know, it's not a binary state. We agree this is the date, but that doesn't mean we're not going to revisit that date anymore, right? This is the date that we set with information we have today. As we learn, as other things come up, other maybe priorities or fires, whatever, is going to make us revisit that date and that might change. It's not life or death, right? So now, moving on. Let's talk about scope. We talk about dates. Let's talk about a scope, my friend. Yeah, that's uh, also one of the things we tend to obsess with, like mm. features, more features. Very frequently, you will see uh, this uh, product advice coming from, you know, this uh, Twitter uh, influencer saying, if you're not ashamed of the product you ship, you probably shipped too late. But at the same time, you keep seeing product managers adding features and pushing the date. We tend to think that adding features will increase the chances of success for a product. When, if you actually think about it, the amount of friction that a new feature introduces, it's actually detrimental to the success of the product because at the end of the day, nobody cares about this new stupid product. The only thing they care about is making their lives easier or more beautiful or cheaper no. or something else, but not using your product. You, you don't wake up in the morning to say, I'm going to use my Air Europa app, no. right? <laughs> you want to book a flight. Um, so the more features you add, the harder it is for you to get traction and, and communicate the value of your product because it becomes... Uh, Swiss army knife, right? Yeah. The exercise that I like to, you know, demonstrate that it actually dilutes your value proposition is get the business guy, the business dev guy, and tell him, sell this pen kind of exercise, right? How on earth you're gonna start enumerating all these benefits or features or whatever, right? When in fact you can do that in one liner, two, two lines, and then they get it. Like you say, they're trying to solve their problem. They're not trying to, I'm gonna use this product. Yeah, and back to what you said, I mean, David, you as well, like, we don't wake up, users don't wake up to try new things, right? And one thing I always tell to my team is like, guys, you have too much faith to an audience. <laughs> you think our audience is smart. We need to dummy it down as dumb, as simple as possible, right? We're lazy people. Amazon is Amazon because it's convenient, right? It, like you said, the more features you add, just you're creating more problems for the users. Don't make me think, which by the way is another book. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, in general, we tend to underestimate how expensive attention is, and we mm -hmm. think users are going to read, users are going to wait for the end of the video, users are going to try 10 times. And at, at this moment, attention is very scarce, and it's very arrogant from you as a PM to expect that users are going to do everything uh, you ask them to do in order to onboard, or even before that, in order to understand what's the product about. Mm. 
That's it, listeners. Just wonder how many apps you have in your phone and how many you actually use. What about traction, Lucas? Distribution as discovery accelerator. Tell us more about that. Um, after failing with the App Store, I realized that it didn't matter how many features or how cool the product was, how fast the product launched. If no one is using it, then it doesn't matter. Not only because the product is not successful, is because you lack critical mass to understand why and also to evaluate new iterations. Whatever gets you traction is as important than the features themselves. Mm -hmm. And I think that's kind of segue to education, right? The reason I say I love being a product manager is it makes me to learn. I'm, I'm a very curious person and I want to learn, right? If I'm failing, I'm learning something, right? Is this is successful? Sure, it might be like my hypothesis were correct, but also it could be the timing, the market, right? Or paid ads, right? Still, you need to understand why. Right? True, but when you're successful, it's easy to, oh, it's successful, celebrate, it's fun. Yeah. Exactly, but with the failure, that's, I think, where the true learning happens. And yeah, in the same way that, you know, agile principles encourage developers to embrace change, we as PMs, we have to embrace failure and, you know, turn the ego voice down. We have this misconception that our job is to be right all the time, mm -hmm. when in reality, our job is to figure it out as fast as possible. And in order to figure things out, guess what? You have to fail. Mm -hmm. Yes, sir. <laughs> so moving on now, because I know you, that you're very passionate about e-com. And I want to understand, and maybe you can explain to the audience, why do you like so much e-com space? Yeah, well, I think it's one of the most honest spaces because with or without hype, if you're not selling, you don't have a business. And it, that is very easy to verify a space that has a few traits that makes it very interesting from the product perspective. One of them is that in general, e-commerce organizations start with a very small product team. Mm -hmm. And that means that you have a PM that is in charge of a variety of problems that is not that easy to have access to in a bigger setup. On the other side, with e-commerce, you're not actually developing a product. You're developing the channel. I like at, that. At the same time, you have a variety of problems in order to make that channel function. One day you're doing an A-B test with the hero section of the homepage. Next day you're talking to the logistics guy, trying to predict how, how long it's going to take for a product to be restocked. Next day, you're talking to the marketing guy to figure out how are we going to let users know when the new product is available, whether we have a wait list or whether we have a list of users that try to buy, to try to buy the product and couldn't make it. It's a very wide space. So going back to the, I really like how you started telling your experience on Ecom, Lucas, you said, it's not as much or only about the product, it's also about the channel, right? If you can sum up that to someone that doesn't really know or understand the difference, 
you know, some PMs are more technical and maybe they are less interested to be working closely with marketing, let's put it that way, right? Yeah. So what can they expect? So one of the things about building a channel is that user personas evolve faster than user personas of a digital product. I'll give you an example. If you're building a digital tool, let's say a collaboration tool, chances are that the user is going to have the same needs for a long period of time. It's like, I need to do a mind map and share it with my team. Three years later, the same person will probably need another mind map and share it with, with the team. In the channel, people need different things more frequently. You might go to Amazon today to look for a gift for a friend and tomorrow to buy food for your dog. You're still yourself, but the use case is completely different and maybe even the business model is completely different because for the friend's gift, you want to do a transaction, but for the dog food, you want to go with a subscription, maybe. Mm -hmm. That doesn't happen on regular digital product development. The channel gives you the chance to follow the user through different use cases, different points in the life cycle, and pay more attention to those nuances. Yeah, so amazing advice and amazing tip. I am actually fairly new to e-commerce. So my product experience past seven years has been platform. I guess the question for me is, for the PMs, what is the advice for these PMs coming into e-commerce e and learning there's a product that we need to care, but there's also a channel which is ops to marketing to actual physical product, you know, packaging and all that. Because it is, like you said, it's exciting, but also for some product managers can be very overwhelming. It is, and I, I have had the first-hand experience. And for me, it was really hard until I learned that it wasn't about being able to do everything at once. It was about being able to do one thing right, develop a framework, develop a process, and then bring someone to replace you so you can focus on the next thing. Mm -hmm. That requires a lot of support from the leadership team because they have to accept that some things are going to break. And in general, it's easier to approach it that way when you start from the properties that are customer facing, namely the storefront and the returns, which is a big chunk of the customer interaction, interaction because it's easy to think uh, of the storefront and, and having, you know, amazing pictures, good, good animations for mobile, um, you know, funky things when you add something to cart, confetti with the, with the thank you page, all that stuff. I love confetti, by the way. But 30 to 15% of the orders get returned. Yeah. And that's also a big part that, that plays a lot in, in terms of retention too, like keeping people uh, coming okay. requires that they have a good re return or refund experience if possible, automated and instant. And then once you figure those two out, those, those two out uh, maybe introduce a growth team for experimentation, trying different things, uh, and then focus on the back office 
No, but it, it's amazing how you ma mentioned this, not knowing what I'm going through right now. <laughs> because as a product manager at e-commerce that's been acquired by Zalando, exact same thing. We're planning Q3, return is a big topic. Like 20% for us, for our business, you said 15 to 30. Mm -hmm. And it's not automated. Again, our calculation is so wrong. Like we look at our, like look board, how much revenue we made per month. And when there's a return like one week, it just goes, it's just all messy. It yeah, it, it's, yeah, you'll never get more e-commerce for sure. In any case, to close on this subject and then move on, would you say that the channel then sets the agenda for a PM in e-com? It does in, in a way that it's your first fight and that's how you build trust with the leadership. After you get the channel right, the technology in terms of uh, security, fraud prevention, the stack, the storefront, refunds, automations, then you can turn back and pay attention to automating back office processes. And it's actually a, a, a math game that is really easy to play once you realize whether you need to optimize the existing process or change the process and start from scratch. I remember a very concrete example at Third Love. We had this system for underwear refunds. The underwear refunds don't go back into stock. The product get destro gets destroyed. Right. So what we did at the beginning was to automate the refund, but then we realized that we were paying two and a half dollars to get an item destroyed so we realized that it wasn't about optimizing the re the refund and and paying for the ref for the returning item it was about making sure that that item is not available anymore so instead of asking for the item to be returned we asked for a picture of the item being destroyed by the user so it was basically something like this you want your money back send a picture of your underwear cut in half and we'll give you the money back. No need to print a label and send it back. So, ouch. It is very easy and very tempting to just optimize for the sake of automation mm -hmm. and not for the sake of saving money or optimizing the process. Yeah, that's very innovative. At the end of the day, it's a win-win-win, right? Win for the environment, win for the user. They get, again, they get their refund and the company, they're saving costs, right? Yes, sucks that you have to shred your underwear, but again, also as a user, next time when I order, I'll do a better job not to waste, you know, there's a little bit of guilt as well as a user. Like, yeah. I was, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, it's a very, like you said, like don't do automation for automation sake, really see the big picture of problem, right? Yeah. Yeah. Nice. We could continue talking for hours. I want to move on to where we met, right? And this company is called Olapic. That's where Lucas and I met. And Olapic basically was a company serving e-com companies right, that needed uh, content for their marketing channels. Right? So Olapic would give you curated content for you to activate here and there. And Lucas joined as the first product manager in the Cordova's office. I was back then um, engineer manager. And that's when I, I started moving to the dark side. Thanks, Lucas. If I remember correctly, 
you were one of the guys complaining about me wasting the engineer's time doing shadowing sessions. Um, <laughs> How long have you guys worked together in my company? I think it was one year, yeah. Yeah, not as much because I think you you spent there a year and a half, maybe almost two. Yeah, I left. I left in. Yeah, I left after a year and a half to an e-commerce company. It's really hard to introduce professional discipline, product management practices, when you have people on the other side that have like massive ego, and they think the only way to success is just keep trying like crazy. You have this American mindset of carpet bombing and trying everything just in case. Simultaneously. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the, the hustle, the grinding mentality, which of course it works because at some point you hit the jackpot. Most of the times you run out of money and resources, but if you stay alive for long enough, you will eventually do it, right? And the problem with that is that nobody knows how long, how much long enough is, right? And yeah, the result for that was I, I almost get fired after three months. By the way, I, I would like to say some context on how challenging was the scenario when Lucas joined. And this is probably one of the reasons I told you before. Team leads, engineer managers were all doing indirectly some product work at some level. And then Lucas joined as a test we were in Argentina, but everything else in New York. So they were actually looking for PMs in New York. Lucas proactively said, hey, have you considered having a PM in Cordoba? And in an event, you met one of the founders, convinced him to try it out. And then on the other side, every time you work for a B2B company, especially when it's mid or small size, the ones making the calls are the founders. You're gonna, as a, as a PM, you're gonna clash every single time with their opinions. So, yes, um, what I wanna ask you, Lucas, is how did it feel back then doing product remotely? Well, um, I think I'm going to repeat uh, my sales pitch to, to the CTO. The company already had already reached market fit. They have a decent uh, stream of revenue and they have a very strong positioning as the number one company sourcing UGC for e-commerce purposes. So in product, before market fit, you need to be close to your customers. After market fit, you can you know take some distance and focus more on engineering and optimization. So you have to be close to the engineers. So that's how I sold the idea. To, to the CTO, and I still believe so. Ideally, you have everyone in the same room. That's probably hard to perform in the current reality where everybody wants to work from home. You have distributed teams all over the place. But if that's not the case, before market fit, make sure customers are not that far. After market fit, make sure developers are not that far. So, we're talking about do, um, doing product remotely, and this is, from what I understand, pre-COVID, correct? What like, time period, and were there any other companies that were doing remote work? Yeah, so I can confirm that by 2016, there weren't many options for remote PMs, especially for Latin American PMs. And 
because of a friend brought up Olapic and, and their, their struggle with getting some product direction and not being a one-trick pony, development platform, etc. I just proactively offered myself to the company. And I, I don't think I was pioneering anything. It was just out of necessity. Mm-hmm. Now it's, on the contrary, pretty common to have PMs scattered all over the place. So I think you can find a good balance between, you know, spending two weeks every six months with your stakeholders, you know, renewing trust. And then I think it's very uh, reasonable to expect success from a good PM, even if, if, if he's not sitting next to customers or, or engineers. Especially in, in, in B2B, I feel we have these account managers and they, they, they act as a proxy of, of customers at the end. And if you manage to have their favor, that helps, right? Yes, and smart account managers or business developers, whatever you want to call them, sales engineers sometimes, the smart ones realize that PNs are an ally. Because most of the times when an account manager gets a phone call, it's because something broke. It's a complaint. Or it's time to renew the contract. Definitely not positive environments, right? But when you do a shadowing or when you do a solutions workshop or when you just introduce ideas for potential new features, the customer enjoys that session. You as a PM learn a lot and the AM creates uh, more satisfaction practically doing nothing other than just setting the call up or setting the, the session up. Nice, nice. So there you have, it could be done back then, it can definitely be done now, um, and yeah. Now, free Zoom, right? <laughs> it's working remotely. What were you using back then? FaceTime? Google yeah, Meet? I think Malapic had Google tools, and then when it got acquired, we need to shift to Microsoft tools. Oh, my brain just erased that part. Yeah, good for you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, then, okay, let's move on this time. This is, I'm, I'm curious about, you know, given that you have been in the industry almost like 20 years or so, although you look younger, listens, he looks younger. Not true, but thank you. Then, you know, just like right now, there was hype around crypto. Today, everyone is talking about AI. Enoch and I were wondering, what was the hype back then? when you were making the transition, when you were working for Intel, which I guess back then was one of the... Superpower. Yeah. Yeah. So back then, I can say like with 80% of certainty, it was all about app stores and apps. The iPhone was launched in 2007. Then there was like a prototype of an app store. Everything was about the app store because this new category of, of software emerged and it was super successful and you will hear the stories of developers making millions for very with very very silly games and 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 apps that became super popular overnight and it was definitely a gold rush back then so much that two years after uh, we were launching our own app store at intel which was completely crazy because it was the first time that intel exposed the brand on a software product for consumers. First time ever. 
and that will probably give you a sense of how much hyped were apps back then. Mm. So much that Intel risked the brand in a software product for consumers. And would you say, so we're talking about App Store with the iPhone. I want to just tie it, the needle to a present tense, right? WWDC 2023, the Apple Vision Pro, right? The new device, the spatial computing, the new App Store, right? There's a, it seems like they're trying to recreate this iPhone of you know human computer interaction. Again, with Intel apps, they they went in and they got a little burnt, if I understand correctly. Do you think this is a similar cycle that you see with the Vision Pro and this spatial computing? To be honest, I'm not sure because back then the App Store appeared to solve a very concrete problem, which was software for mobile devices was crap and it was usually not safe to use and it was really hard to install and definitely really hard to uninstall <laughs> and you have this fragmentation across different operating systems you have motorola with three or four nokia with symbian then blackberry it was a mess and the for developers and the experience was terrible Exactly, but because for developers it was, it was really hard. There wasn't a single SDK that you can use to build your stuff. And also distribution was really painful. DRM pretty much didn't exist as a service. You have to build your own. And that was pretty much killing convenience. And the App Store solved all those three problems at the same time. Good developer experience, safety, security, and convenience. And from the developer perspective, not having to worry about the channel, that was amazing. So I think the timing was perfect, the habit was there, but problems were very prominent and they solved it all at once. With the Apple Vision product, I'm not sure what's the problem they're trying to solve. They're trying to create a new habit, which is really hard and really expensive. Not saying they're not going to make it, I have no idea, but the context is completely different. The problem they're trying to solve is definitely not that clear. Mm -hmm. And needless to say, the price of the device is yeah. a very high entry barrier. I don't know. I think we'll have to wait, but the context is completely different. Yeah, I think I read an article that they said they're producing less of Apple Pro because of supply and demand. But knowing Apple, Apple has the best supply. And Tim Cook is Tim Cook of CEO because he was a supply uh, chain guy, right? And like, there are some rumors, it's not supply chain issue, it's actually the demand isn't there, right? And yeah. Apple is all about scarcity, right? And you make something cool, expensive, higher price, you start from that luxury scarcity, so people create things, but at least right now, it feels like, at least from the tech folks that I talked to, the, cr the craving isn't there so much, mm -hmm. right? Um, yeah, I mean, I would love to try it, right? To, you know, see how the Mac thing, or if you have a MacBook and, you know, the OS integration, but I totally do agree with you, like, truly solving a problem, like. Maybe we should ask Lucas what he thinks about AI. Mm we will need to get very specific uh, on that. So what do I think about AI for classification? It works. It's been working for more than 10 years. 
What do I think about AI for uh, image recognition? It works. It's been working for more than 10 years. And, you know, let's fast forward to what everybody means when they say AI. It's not what we mean, Lucas, what do we mean? Generative AI. I think that there is this huge misconception that is going to take thousands of jobs from content creators. And I'll be honest, I'm not that sure. And the reason for that is that it will be the equivalent to say that because e-bikes exist, regular bikes are going to cease to exist. And, and you know, regular bike riders are going to cease to exist. And you only, you're only going to find people that ride e-bikes, right? So there might be a trend for some replacement, but it's not going to be technology replacing people. It's going to be people that cannot use the technology being replaced by people who can. And of course, that will maybe make some room for, for optimizations. We've been doing a couple of experiments at TaxFix on the content creation side of things. And we have reached good quality results. But when, when we compare the hu human-only results, it's not that far. We're not talking about two hours versus zero. We're talking about two hours versus three. And I don't believe that we've seen the biggest impact yet in terms of uh, content creation, because for me, the biggest impact is going to be on video. And the reason for that is, is way more expensive to produce, A, and B, there's this trend on ad networks that they're all optimizing for video in terms of impressions, in terms of spending, everything is video. I think the massive growth that TikTok had in the last three years, kind of, it was a wake up call for most networks. And now everything is about video. video. Sure. And right now, Video is at the same stage that images were in 2018. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's very interesting how you mentioned video because when I was in LA, I was working on a startup for music company, music startup, building videos for musicians. The whole, the pitch was musicians are great at making music, but if they want to, so to speak, get some traction, you have to blow up in YouTube. It used to be, and then, and then that's when TikTok was coming off, coming off, and the idea of video and now short-term video is such a necessity at this point, right? I mean, we also talk about should we create a podcast for for video, right? But back to your point, users users are dumb. It's convenient, and it, it, it's it's you can hook those users. Yeah, in in my case, I, I'm not as much into AI. Yet I like your your analogy on the on the on the bike because I think it was Steve Jobs when he was explaining uh, what was the first computer a bicycle for the mind right so I, I certainly subscribe that those who use and leverage AI and I think you, you we can already check that with our colleagues and peers and family and friends how many of them are already leveraging ChatGPT for their daily work the admin stuff the boring stuff, the time-consuming stuff. The other day, like trying to get a script for a user interview took me 30 seconds, which before you probably open, I don't know, 
five, six tabs just to see if you're taking the latest pro tips to come up with a good script. Boom, 30 seconds, right? But anyways, you mentioned this experiment at TaxFix. So maybe now is your time to shield, my friend. Tell us, what are you doing at TaxFix? Well, my, my job in TaxFix just changed. I was director of MarTech, taking care mostly of ad tech, integrations, internal tooling, the stack for content management and the CRM. And now I'm also taking over the platform side of things, user management, documents management, payments, and the design system. And for the listeners who don't have a scope of how big this tax fix is, can you explain, if you can, the problem that you're solving and number of users that they use, and I'm your user, I have to say, yeah. and probably the comparison of, let's say, US version of tax fix. Of course. So I might not be allowed to reveal the number of users. No, we do numbers too. <laughs> we have facilitated more than 1 billion in refunds since the company started operating, which is massive amount. And since when? I think it was 2017. 17, yeah. six years. All right. And we're just scratching the surface. There are more than 13 million Germans that don't file tax refunds that could be eligible for a refund. and Through your platform, you mean? Or in general? In general. In general. Okay. So the market is, hasn't been tapped yet. And there is, of course, an American counterpart, which is TurboTax. I don't have specifics on the size of that company. I do know that when they started, they were solving a very painful problem and it was mostly convenience and, and lack of knowledge mm-hmm. problem. When TaxFix started, probably the same, but now everything has improved and the, go- the government solution has improved too. So it's, the focus is shifting to supporting users in, in a more personalized way. and doubling down on convenience with a new product, which is called assisted tax filing. Users will answer a couple of questions and then go on the phone and a tax expert will solve the problem for them. We're seeing a lot of traction. And now the focus is on, you know, optimizing the back office so we can get operations cost down to an acceptable level. Mm-hmm. One question that I have, tax fix, is again, you're getting refund from your taxes. Um, one of the things you learn about Germans, they're all about privacy, right? How do you manage this German, so to speak, bureaucracy that we, again, me and David, we talked about multiple times <laughs> when it comes to tax fix? Because at the end of the day, you're asking Germans to provide these financial information. That's correct. And tax fix has done a great job earning trust from users by simply just doing the right, right thing and being transparent about what's the reason why they're asking for the information. And there's a similar use case to, to what you just mentioned, which is the prefill. Rather than inputting everything from scratch, you can send or request a code from the tax authority and then that they will mail you the code. And with that key, you can like just 
authorize tax tricks to pull your information and skip mm -hmm. a lot of questions. Mm -hmm. And also be conscious of what's important for your users because they're trusting you with very sensitive information, probably information they don't provide online to any other service. So it's both a privilege and a huge responsibility to have that level of trust with your users. And it's also core for the business. So I don't think anyone will ever think of breaking that trust. One thing that comes to mind, there's a, the perception that if you use a tool like TaxFix, you are compromising on the amount that you would get because of the convenience. Is that true? Well, we have different user personas and you will have people that just want to get it done because they're not expecting a big refund. And then you have the optimizers that they don't mind spending a lot of time answering a lot of questions because they care more about money. And I think the solution uh, is uh, already reacting to that. Uh, we are investing very heavily on personalization. We recently integrated a solution from a company called Uniform that they do digital experience personalization and, and they make it easy to compose the experience for different user personas. Okay. So hold your horses if you want to do your taxes. A new version is coming? Is that what you're saying? Look Not a new version, but at some point we want to remind people why they're there and make it very clear for them what's a reward. With this tax fix, if I understand correctly, is very German. Um, what do you think their cultural differences? Because you build products for US audience, for global audience, but building for this specific niche. And we're not saying Germans think alike. However, there are also cultural differences that you have to cater in when you're building a product for a specific group. If you can just think some of these elements. Even at a company level, right? Your peers, your, the company you're working on. Sure. In terms of the audience, I hear a lot about sustainability and privacy. And the team is very well aware of them. When it comes to developers or the product organization, we just said that the American style is carpet bombing. Um, I would say that the German style is more uh, sharpshooters. Mm -hmm. um, they take their time for aiming, but they make sure every shoot counts. Coming from a more Americanized environment, in my, in my personal case, I've worked like more than 20 years for American companies, sometimes it might feel that it's, it's slower, mm. but chances are you're walking on the right direction. So you might walk less distance, but in terms of progress, it's pretty similar. In the American environment, you're zigzagging mm -hmm. very fast. In the European environment, you're going on the right path, but maybe taking more time on every iteration. Mm. That's at least the way I feel it. It's a really good imagery. Yeah. Um, one more thing is you're here in Berlin, you're visiting your headquarters. What has changed from back in the day, let's say working remote in Argentina in early 2010 to now um, post-COVID? Is there any big difference that you see from back then and now? I think the main difference is that even if I wanted to work face-to-face -face right now, it will be really hard because not everyone is coming to the office every day. Yeah. 
back in the day, you will be the only one remote. You will sign in and you will get this massive office with 10 people on it, all on their laptops. And nowadays it's like everyone is on the camera. Everyone is uh, remote, even if they're at the office. Sometimes one is like one person is in one room, another person is in a different room. So I think COVID was an equalizer in that sense, because we all learn to be more empathic with the person that was farther and like enable mechanisms for the person to interrupt and ask, ask a question. So may, maybe being more succinct in communication. Crisp. Yeah, and also Slack made a, di a big difference because back in the day, people didn't know how to Slack asynchronously. It will be like, hey, can I ask you a question? I'm like, just ask the question, right? Like, again, now those things are not so frequent. And Depends on the company though. Oh, really? Yeah, because some companies really don't know how to use Slack. Yeah, it's Still. crazy enough, that's a thing. But at least from my experience, it's happened less and less. Mm. It's happening less and less, and, and at some point, it removes all this unnecessary stress that was part of the remote work five, six years ago. So it, it's only getting better, if you ask me. Beautiful. If you're gonna interrupt me with a DM, don't send me five messages. Send me one blog with everything you need to know. So I get one notification. Then you could argue you should manage your notifications, and that is another aspect. But yeah, I, I'm happy to see that slowly but surely we're moving towards being more empathetic when it comes to communication. That also helps in real life. But coming back to being on site, I have to say I missed it. Yeah. Speak for yeah, of course. All right, then. I guess we can start wrapping this up and we can move to the final section with my friend here, Enoch. Yeah, so Lucas, we have this segment called Real PM Shit, where we, I ask some rapid questions and you just have to tell me your answers, whatever comes to your head. Um, shorter the better, there's no explanation here. And yeah, well, I'll just shoot some questions. I'm starting to get scared, but yeah, let's get as into it. As you should, as you should, my friend. So number one, one favorite book that you would recommend? For beginners, Lean Proud Playbook by Dan Olson. For not very beginners, How to Make Sense of Any Mess. Okay, taking notes here now. If you were asked to automate one part of your job, what will it be? Status reports. Okay. I'm on it, by the way. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> it was just too much. Uh, what job will become automated due to the AI? In product, hmm, interesting. Yeah, probably creating Jira tickets. That, but that's a more a wish than a prediction. I mean, I'm using ChatGPT for creating tickets. I'm already doing that. Yeah. Name me one tech trend, and it could be something that you mentioned before that you think it's completely a waste of time. You just don't believe in this trend. Hmm. I don't know if it's hard because there are so many of there are so few. Um, <laughs> First thing that comes to mind. Uh, 
I think now I think this augmented reality thing we haven't find a, a good use case that justifies the wearing all the stuff but that's probably right now it's really hard to tell like 3D TVs 10 years ago mm. oh that's a good comparison nice I like that name a failed tech product that you love and why Microsoft Access um, uh, of course now we have Notion databases and we love them. Access gave us that and even more, uh, more than 20 years ago. And for some reason, we couldn't realize the potential of the tool, especially from a product perspective. You will be able to create a prototype in a matter of seconds without writing a single line of code. And for some reason, it disappeared. Oh, wow. Interesting. I forgot. I had no clue. Maybe for some folks, Research it? No, I don't know. If you were not a product manager, what would you be? Hmm, good one. A carpenter, maybe. I, I build my own tables, like like my dining table when I in, in my single apartment. I build it with my own hands, and I also managed to sell some stuff. So, nice. yeah, nice. So you can have a second life after your retirement. Probably, probably. <laughs> So next section is fill in the blank. So I will write, I will tell you a sentence and you will fill in the blank. As a PM, I make sure I blank. Invest enough time on providing context. The startup that doesn't deserve its hype is blank. Mid journey. Blank is worst business decision I have ever seen. Blockbuster not continuing the efforts on streaming oh, okay, because they were nice. too focused on late fees. Interesting. Nice. Blank is the one tech leader who got it all wrong. Adelini when he rejected the deal with Apple for building the processors for the iPhone. That is very true. I can agree with that. Um, and lastly, my name is Lucas and I am blank. My name is Lucas, and I'm the type of PM that if all the uh, jobs pay the same, will still be a PM. Wow. You heard it here, Lucas. Amazing, passionate product. Again, makes sense why you're a mentor and a good friend of David. Thank you for coming, making the time for us to sit on the podcast. All right, guys. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed this, and I can't wait for this episode to be live. Awesome. Thank you, Lucas.